This is the Resident Review, a plastic surgery podcast. This is a platform designed for education of plastics, hand, and craniofacial surgery trainees from medical student to master surgeon. Our episodes take you through high-yield topics along with experts in the field in order to maximize your knowledge and refine your techniques. Stay tuned after the episode for a brief message from our sponsors. Rosie Trotta. Welcome back to the resident review. I am here with Dr. Holly Lewis, another plastic surgery resident from Duke, and we are joined by Dr. Blair Peters, all the way from Oregon. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Holly, do you want to give an intro to our esteemed guest today? Yeah, great. Thank you. So today we're joined by Dr. Blair Peters to discuss their work in gender-affirming surgery. Dr. Blair Peters is a double fellowship trained plastic and reconstructive surgeon specializing in gender affirming surgery and peripheral nerve surgery at OHSU in Portland, Oregon. Dr. Peters, who uses he and they pronouns, is an assistant professor in the Division of Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery and the Department of Urology at OHSU. They completed a residency in plastic and reconstructive surgery at the University of Manitoba, then pursued their first fellowship in peripheral nerve, hand, and microsurgery at WashU in St. Louis. Dr. Peters then pursued a second fellowship in comprehensive gender-affirming surgery at OHSU, where they remained as faculty. A large part of his practice focuses on phalloplasty and vaginoplasty surgeries. He aims to combine clinical innovation and leverage his unique training to bring techniques of nerve surgery into gender-affirming surgery. His research is focused on erogenous outcomes after genital surgery, and the development of novel nerve transfers. They are both a member of, and a strong advocate of, the LGBTQIA community, and a frequent speaker at conferences and panels as an educator and advocate for policy changes and increased coverage for gender-affirming surgery and the broader rights of all queer people. They strive to be a strong queer voice in medicine and surgery. Thank you, Dr. Peters, for joining us today. Yeah, thank you so much. That was such a nice uh, bio read there. <laughs> well, we are really excited to have you uh, join us today. And to kind of kick off the podcast, we thought we'd ask you, could you tell us how you first got interested in surgery and reconstructive surgery in particular? Yeah, for sure. Um, I definitely did not go into medical school, um, particularly, I think, inclined to necessarily be a surgeon. Um But I certainly had just a general interest. I think that anyone does about like plastic surgery as like a just general person out in the community. So I kind of just started checking it out. And I think um, it certainly like broke down a lot of what my biases and preconceived notions are about what a plastic surgeon is or does. Um, And I just found the breadth of the field like really quite remarkable in terms of just ping ponging between different rooms and seeing people like head to toe all over the body. Um, and then once I finally got into surgical rotations, found that I really liked a problem that I could kind of fix, um, and address. And I liked that, that sort of, you know, start and finish or completion component to it. Um, so I think that's what initially drove me to go into plastic reconstructive surgery. Um, and I think the idea that you can evolve so much in this field and your practice can go through so many iterations of development over a 30 plus year career, um, and I think we have a really like unique, innovative culture in this specialty. Totally. I, I think those are some of the things that drove, uh, that kind of helped draw me into plastic surgery as well. 
We, so kind of speaking from reconstructive and plastic and into gender affirming surgery, we, we hear a lot these days, a lot of misinformation, a lot of hype and um, other concerns in the, the media and the scientific press as well. And in some of your academic work, you talked about the work that we do as surgeons, as reconstructive surgeons in general, mm-hmm. is focused on affirming patients. And that idea is something that you've spoken about is not really a new concept. Can you talk a little bit about how you define gender affirming surgery? Yeah, I think that's such an important point. First and foremost, you know, gender affirming surgery is newer in terms of its integration into academic medicine, but affirming surgery has always been there as have trans and gender diverse people as well as their care needs. So it's new to us. It is not new to the the community and the people that have been needing to access these services for a very long time. Um, and because of that, I think we're playing a lot of catch up work. And I think because procedures like breast augmentation for cis women and gynecomastia reduction for cis men and all these things are just so normalized in our specialty that people kind of overlook the fact that those in themselves are nothing but gender affirming procedures. If we're not affirming somebody and making them feel more comfortable and confident in their bodies with that surgical procedure, then what, what are we doing it? So there are huge overlaps. And I think that helps people kind of understand how gender affirming surgery fits under the broader umbrella of plastic surgery. So the way that I define gender affirming surgery is, you know, as a surgeon, you have a toolkit or a toolbox, and I view my role as helping someone physically actualize their internal sense of self. And that sounds a little bit maybe open-ended or abstract, but I think it should. Um, People are individuals and have unique needs and different goals and different desires. And it's all about figuring out, you know, where someone's dysphoria is coming from, or what is it in particular that um, they need addressed while factoring in, you know, other realities like limitations of surgical techniques and informed consent process, risk to benefit ratio, and really using all of those pieces of information to kind of make a joint collective decision with the patient. And that does look very different for everybody. Um, So I find that if I use that as my guiding principle, I find the right operation for the right person that they feel confident and comfortable with. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. How how does that overlap with the newest edition of standard of care from the WPATH in terms of like informed consent and shared decision making? Yeah. So the funny thing about, I think, approaching my practice with that model is I think that some of the care given to trans and gender diverse people at some of the really robust multidisciplinary programs in this country is better healthcare than most people in America get. Um, I think, you know, it really truly is patient centered and the approaches that I use with my gender patients has overflown into every other general plastic surgery patient that I see Um, because we're not necessarily trained to like center the individual and like center their needs and center their goals and their priorities. Like we're often approaching things from a very like academic, well, this will be the best thing for you and not necessarily like really leveling with the person and getting to know where they're coming from. Um, but to answer your actual question, <laughs> and as far as the WPAS standards go, I'd say we're kind of taking this slow march towards an informed consent process. And when we look at something like um, gender affirming hormone therapy, 
um, a lot of centers are using just an informed consent model. Um, we're not fully there with surgery yet. So the WPATH standards of care do still have um, requirements for a letter of support, but that has decreased. It used to typically be two letters for most surgical procedures. We're now down to one, even for genital surgery in SOC8. Um, and it's even written in the guidelines that um, I think we're recognizing both as a field and, you know, hopefully as a society that we've set everything up in this completely binary model where even like a gender transition was either male to female, female to male, even the language we use to like code procedures, CPT codes are all very rigid in these boxes. And that system has failed a lot of people who don't fit into those boxes or don't necessarily have that trajectory to what their gender transition looks like. So I think we're trying to now find ways to open up that system and make sure we're capturing everybody that needs treatment and needs care. So basically, um, even the standards of care now have sort of guidelines for people that don't fit in those linear trajectories and how do you handle those requests and sort of respect the person and what their needs are. So I think everything is just becoming more patient-centered and more individualized. I have a question. I love, so I love that definition and um, kind of your explanation of how we're becoming like more progressive in the way that we're identifying people and kind of being more inclusive. Do you find that medicine is always trailing in um, its inclusivity compared to the rest of the world? Or are we a little bit, do we intend, do we tend to be a little bit more progressive just because of our field? Hmm. I think both things can be true at once. <laughs> um, and I don't think it's necessarily linear um, across sort of the entire geographic landscape of medicine. I find that for sure there's a lag when we think about any marginalized community. And that just really sort of goes back to the fact that if you look at our representation in medicine, it's still severely lacking, especially when we look at people in like senior leadership level positions. And even a field like gender surgery, like there's very, very few queer, trans or gender diverse people in that work. So it still is mostly like cisgender heterosexual people. And like, we need as many competent surgeons as we can have, like happy to have as many cis allies as possible, but there aren't a lot of trans and gender diverse people like really informing where the field is going. And often there's a lot of education to people even leading the field by patients themselves. So I think because of that, we are often playing catch up because the people that are sometimes leading these charges aren't actually from the communities um, whose care they're guiding. And I think until we fix that problem, not just in gender surgery, but in really every sort of specialty and really have a balanced view and all of those important voices at the table, we're always going to be playing catch up to some degree. I think these like traditional binaries of like who is in power uh, in academic medicine, like certainly has dictated a lot of like the historic progression in gender affirming care. And like yep. we see that a lot in the way that this like surgical education is taught, like, you know, historically as well. And the, I, I want to ask if you could speak a little bit about use of the words like masculinizing chest surgery and what that means like in a, in a, in a world where we are hopefully moving to like a more inclusive definition of gender surgery. And like, particularly with emphasis on like non-binary individuals and how their surgical needs like should best be addressed. Yeah, so I'd say even, even like two years ago, honestly, um, the language in the field was still very much dominated by kind of two binary pods. So even 
something like vaginoplasty would be under the umbrella of feminizing genital surgery. Um, and affirming chest surgery or mastectomy would be, you know, chest masculinization. Um, so it was still very much reinforcing that you kind of go one of two ways and you have this binary transition from one gender to the other. And I think that as a field, um, we're realizing that there is harm in reinforcing a binary only narrative. Um, my team just put out an opinion piece in PRS about challenging the binary bias in gender surgery. And the reality is, is a lot of sort of what we're doing also like reinforces what's happening at an insurance level. And there's a lot of people that we've historically harmed by only kind of providing one path forward. And there's a lot of people that, for example, have intense chest dysphoria and need top surgery, but do not need or want or desire the changes testosterone would give to their body and have had to go on hormones to access chest surgery and sort of had to make these terrible choices um, without actually being provided the care that they needed, which was just a gender affirming mastectomy. And it's not until quite recently that we kind of got rid of these, you have to do this and then you have to do this and then you can finally get what it is you actually need. And I think we're trying to kind of deconstruct a lot of that sort of binary way of discussing things. Um, because there are a lot of people that have gender diverse or gender fluid or non-binary identities who have never really fit into either of those trajectories. Um, and I think when we talk about things like regretting a surgery, I think we have in some ways become a self-fulfilling prophecy and generated some cases of regret or dissatisfaction by not truly making the treatment someone needs available and giving them the more binary alternative and sort of forcing them to kind of make a choice between, well, this isn't actually what I truly want, but it's maybe better than where I'm at right now. And I feel like I don't have any other alternatives or options. So I think we're moving away from that and evolving past that. But I mean, I'm sure you all have the same experience. We grow up in this world that is just so hardwired for, you know, cisgender heteronormativity from like the day you are not even born, but like conceived <laughs> on ultrasounds and like gendering and all these things. So it's just so rigid in everything that we do that it, it takes a Herculean effort and a lot of intentionality to kind of break free from that chain. There's been, um, I think, a lot of kind of sensationalism in the media recently and you know in the past about this whole principle of regret. And I think it's often used kind of, you know, against our field in that, in that aspect, but I feel like there's, um, there's probably some misconceptions. How do you best address that with patients and with other providers, you know, who may not have grown up in the era that mm. we are? Yeah, that is such a great question. Um, I really truly believe this is something that we need to be talking about as a field, not just in gender surgery, but in plastic surgery as a whole, like much more openly at the end of the day, you know, before we kind of get into the nuances of like regret and detransition, number one, like gender affirming surgery and gender affirming care is medically necessary care. Like that is not a debate period. Absolutely. So let's just like move past that. Um, the issue that we're seeing right now is, you know, gender affirming care, especially surgical care has really, really been politicized. And a lot of major media outlets, even like very respectable, reputable outlets, are really sort of falling into that kind of preconceived bias that we all sort of grow up with. And 
not really doing honest reporting and really sort of manufacturing this divisiveness across the country and turning like people's medical care into a political issue. So you're very often seeing a couple of stories of people with some type of surgical regret or maybe someone that's detransitioned. And that is positioned against the entirety of gender care as a whole, which is objectively just so irresponsible and so damaging. And I think it really is giving the general public who maybe don't have a lot of direct experience with people going through transition related care, like a totally wrong idea of what the reality of this care actually is. And I think we have to realize too, like how oppressed this care has been for so long. It's really only in the last handful of years that insurance coverage is much more readily available and a huge population of people across an entire lifespan are able to access care for the first time. And with that, the numbers just are logarithmically and exponentially increasing with how many people are undergoing transition and surgical care. So even if we're looking at numbers that are very low, you know, the commonly touted thing is 1%, which again, I'm not sure that 1% is true, depending on how you're defining a detransition, for example, but we're going to see way more cases over the next five to 10 years, just based off of like, you know, that exponentially increasing number of people. And I think we need to realize that regret rates from a surgical procedure are so much higher in everything else we do in plastic surgery. If we look at rhinoplasty and breast augmentation, and we allow people to make decisions for themselves and then support them if they do have a regret and discuss what their options are, we should not be approaching this any differently. And someone that's detransitioning, for example, they're still undergoing a transition. They still need transition-related resources, which may still include you. So I am very strongly rooted in people that have a regret or that detransition are still part of an affirming care program and still need access to the same pool of resources. And I think the more that we kind of try to not talk about it or avoid regret as much as possible, I think we just push those people further and further away towards, you know, like these really extreme um, media outlets and like very, very like radicalized political views because they're getting medically gaslit. They're totally invalidated. And even within the trans community, they're often attacked because they don't want those stories going forward to sort of threaten the overarching landscape of care. So I think people that are unfortunately in that position, who is a very small number overall, they're some of the most marginalized people in society in terms of, um, I think, just the reality of their access to care and resources. So I think the take home is that it is still the vast, vast minority of people that transition, but we are never going to have a system that completely prevents regret without massively limiting care to a huge group of people and generating much, much, much more harm. I think that's easier for some people to stomach because you don't see it directly. Whereas with a surgeon, if you do operate on somebody and they have a regret, it's a very visible thing and it's a visceral feeling. And I don't think anyone wants to be in that sort of, you know, position, but we have to like really look at this from a social responsibility standpoint and accept that there will never be a perfect system. And we eventually have to allow people to make choices for themselves and have appropriate resources, regardless of the outcome and accept that it is impossible to predict with hundred percent accuracy, how a unique individual is going to respond to an intervention in anything we do in medicine. Like there is going to be individual variation, 
Um, and I think we need to allow for that and support it in some way. I think that's so good. That kind of like circles back to like informed consent, the same thing we do for all mm -hmm. of our procedures all, and, you know, many of which are elective. So it, looking at it kind of similar to that. And then also, like you said, like embracing the people who are going through this because they're even the most marginalized of these communities and they're still needing of our care. Right. And we have to understand that, you know, these resources were so scarce. We almost like created a narrative and an environment where a lot of people are still nervous to be fully honest with the provider because they feel they have to say and do the right things to even access care to begin with. So I think we have generated a lot of regrets cases, just courtesy of our resources are so scarce. People are afraid to tell us that they actually have doubts and talk about it openly or get to the nuances of differences between procedures because people just don't want to be told no. So I really like create an environment where I want people to know that like I'm here and I will provide you care, but we need to spend time like really talking about your fears, your anxieties, your concerns. Like, what are your specific goals and nuances so we can figure out what is the best thing for you long term. But as soon as you create that environment and space and people know that I've got you regardless and we're going to figure this out, that pressure to like get to the OR table often melts away because people feel safe and they feel supported and they feel cared for. And I think that, you know, we need to do better than we currently are but it's hard in the landscape of just what practicing in affirming care looks like right now because everything you do is so heavily scrutinized and often you as a person are like targeted for care you provide and it's a bit of a scary world and i think it's scary to talk about these things but if we don't then i think we allow you know political extremists and the mainstream media to kind of just like run with whatever narrative they choose, which is not reflective of what the reality of people's needs are. I think it's, it's like, it's reflective of like what a traditional hegemony wants to reinforce, which is like a binarized idea of like them versus us, transition versus detransition. When I love your inclusive perspective on incorporating all of these folks and like really centering on a patient-centered approach to care, which is you know something that we were we're taught very early in medical school, right? As or, or any clinical field, to, to really focus on centering that patient. But I think along the way, some of that patient-centered focus, unfortunately, um, gets forgotten for for a lot of different clinicians. And it's it's important to really bring bring us all back to focusing on that patient right in front of us. Absolutely. I actually um, encourage a lot of people that are newer in gender care and are worried about potentially having something like a regret or detransition to read some of the newer works that are coming out by researchers in that field. Because the, the main thing is detransition doesn't always equal regret. And a lot of people detransition for a lot of different reasons and are actually still very satisfied and happy with the changes they've had to their body from affirming interventions. And at the end of the day, you know, we shouldn't be stealing people's narratives from them. And I think each one of those stories allows us to have a better understanding of what's working with our system and what's not working with our system. Um, so I think we're also just missing a huge learning opportunity to continue to improve the care models that we use. Speaking about gender-affirming surgery and, you know, some of the counter narratives that we see in the conventional, like, lay media and press, and also to touch directly on something that can be politically, you know, controversial at times. I wanted to pivot our conversations to the role of gender-affirming care 
in teenagers, specifically focusing on mastectomy for patients between the ages of, say, 13 and 18. We talk a lot about how gender-affirming surgery is a really affirming procedure for a lot of um, folks who were assigned female at birth, um, as well as patients who identify as non-binary. And there's a lot written about and a lot talked about the risks of a procedure like that. But what's not talked about is the very real medical risks of experiencing a gender incongruous puberty and the role, you know, not only for these folks, but also for uh, children who were assigned male at birth and the risks and benefits of being on puberty blockade. And I wanted to know if you could just kind of share your thoughts on the risks and benefits of that type of uh, uh, procedures or those types of therapies for our uh, trans and gender diverse adolescents. Yeah, so that is, I think, the other huge topic or like huge piece of a lot of the broader social conversations happening. Um, but again, the whole lens viewpoint attention is so skewed to the potential negatives, which a lot of our, a lot of these are theoretical. So people are basing a lot of this like fear or trying to ban care for adolescents based off of a lot of theoretical scenarios and just denying what like the reality is in front of them. And there's a lot of studies out there that show that social and medical transition for adolescents has huge mental health benefits and is protective against suicide and so many different um, different issues. But then we look at, you know, things like affirming interventions and the common sort of criticisms of like puberty blockers, for example, are this like potential with decreased bone density and with any type of surgical care, the potential for regret down the line are kind of like the two big narratives that are used to sort of advocate against care. A few important things to note, um, you know, no trans kids or prepubertal trans people are ever having surgery. And I think that's like very important for people to understand. So if someone is having surgery under the 18, under 18, it would usually be a mastectomy. Um, that would be the most common and in most places would be the only potential procedure under that age group. Um, and people that are undergoing that treatment have been like well supported in multidisciplinary programs for years and have had, you know, this stable gender identity for years have had many letters written, the parents are signing off like it's, this is not a quick decision like this has been made over a very, very, very long period of time with a lot of different people involved. But I think it's easy for a lot of governments and a lot of associations and things to, to sort of, you know, say, well, there's like a lot of heat right now. And there's a lot of pushback. And maybe let's just take a watch and wait approach. And people view that as if it's this benign thing that we're like doing nothing. But you are very actively doing something you are condemning people and forcing them down irreversible changes to their body by going through a natal puberty. And when you think about someone that's assigned male at birth, for example, if that individual has access to early pubertal suppression, they often under or don't undergo a lot of irreversible changes like body hair growth, beard growth, voice deepening, um, a lot of facial skeletal changes, broadening of the shoulders, a lot of sort of body contouring changes. So individuals that have had access to early pubertal suppression very rarely would ever need something like facial feminization or body contouring surgery or electrolysis and hair removal. 
probably less likely to need a breast augmentation. So you're often preventing a ton of future surgical intervention by intervening early. Um, and that is completely overlooked and never talked about. This whole like watch and wait approach is not benign in terms of potentially increasing the chance of needing future interventions, but then also the very real psychological trauma of forcing someone through a very distressing time um, by going through, you know, a natal puberty that isn't potentially the right thing for them. So I think that's the very real um, piece of that discussion that's often overlooked. And when we think of adolescence in this day and age and sort of just the mental health of teens in this country, it's pretty dire. And I think we need to be just really careful and listen to what people are telling us. And I think we also just need to be careful on either side of the fence. Like at the end of the day, like I think it backs up to that same idea that a lot of these interventions are young in terms of being available to people in a high volume way. And we should be looking critically, tracking our outcomes and making sure that people are doing well and adjusting as we get feedback in real time and learn from those lessons like any other field. And there needs to be room to have those discussions and to be able to publish honest outcomes without fear of like either being attacked as a provider or patient access being threatened. And that's what really worries me about the current culture right now is there's like no room for education and improving care or expressing anything but a 100% success rate, which is just not realistic in anything that we do. Thank you so much for those uh, those comments. You know, I, I, I think so much of the, you know, you, you speak about the, the role of like the conventional media and sort of like fear mongering and demonizing the care that we do, but it's important to focus on the fact that a lot of times it's not trans kids who are having genital surgeries, mm. but what, what, what we're seeing in a lot of these uh, proposed legislation across the country is like these alleged like child protection uh, laws, but what's um, ignored in all of this legislation pr promotion and all of this conversation is the very real harm that's happening to non-consenting infants, like children that are born with differences in sexual development, right. where a lot of these states are carving out exceptions to continue the practice of binarizing, quote, corrective, unquote, surgeries for uh, these kids with DSD. And I, I think that's just like another piece to kind of remind ourselves of the of, of the intersections between the trans community and the intersex community and like what our role is as surgeons and as public health educators and advocates for the queer community. Yeah, I love that you brought that up. Um, I had an intersex advocate reach out to me a couple of years ago and really sort of asked me and encouraged me to be more like intersex forward and inclusive when I was often speaking or giving lectures because it was something that I was also completely guilty of was just sort of focusing fully on like trans only issues and indirectly harming and erasing intersex people in that discussion and you know first and foremost like some intersex people are trans and those are not mutually exclusive things but when you look at this anti-trans legislation that targets youth access to care, the facts are honestly haunting <laughs> when you just boil it down to what they are writing in these bills. And it literally is um, denying care for any trans person, basically under 18. But then there'll be a very clear sort of exception or a rule to exception stating that 
you know, if because of difference of sexual development or intersex condition, that all of these things are fine. And when we look back at like, well, what are we really talking about? So we're often talking about infants that are born with genitals that don't necessarily like completely fit one binary or the other. Um, and this is at an age infancy or even as a toddler where people are undergoing interventions to like quote unquote binarize or make the genitalia more in alignment with, you know, natal potentially like assigned male or assigned female at birth anatomy. But these are in a setting where the individual can't consent, cannot even communicate to you what their gender identity actually is. And you are just sort of forcing them down this pathway and arbitrarily putting them through surgery that can have real risks too. Like there's intersex people that are on lifelong hormone therapy now because they had gonadectomies. There's intersex people that don't have sexual sensation because they've lost that in clitoral reduction surgeries. Um, and there's a lot of people that have been horribly harmed um, by forced intersex surgery as kids. So that whole narrative that's sort of being pushed about how these bills are to protect children, that is very clearly not the case because we are like actively targeting intersex kids to try to force them into these binary boxes. I think we're trying to keep trans kids into those binary sort of assigned boxes. And that's what it's all about. It's about maintaining sort of what that social norm is and it can't be about anything else. Yeah, totally. So it's about control and about the government like mandating like who goes into what box and these types of things are are rampant across the United States. Um, we're seeing a lot, like particularly in the last few years, we're seeing like a huge wave of legislation. Shout out to Erin in the Morn, who I follow on social media, who like kind of catalogs state after state across the United States that's proposing these bills for people up to the age of 25, which is wildly concerning for just adult autonomy, patient care in any healthcare system. Like these should be like ringing alarm bells in every medical school across the country if they aren't already. I mean, if you look at how successful anti-trans legislation has been, it should not be a surprise like where we're at in this country. So, you know, we really saw like the kind of bathroom bill was like the first big avalanche. And then we Mm -hmm. kind of moved on to sports and then we fully went for healthcare and that has now progressed from teens to even like adulthood and then this has been going on for years and then all of a sudden we see Roe v. Wade mm-hmm. come up mm-hmm. and you know everyone's acting like so shocked and horrified and surprised of how could this ever have happened and we saw so many cisgender women I remember it was like right around um I think it was Memorial Day and people were you know, outrageous saying, I'm not celebrating because no one's free in this country and we don't have independence and autonomy over our bodies. And I kind of just was sitting there like, where have you been for the last three or four years when there's been this massive assault on trans people and all of these very successful attacks on personal autonomy? It's going to roll uphill. So if you're waiting for like your own community group to be attacked, then it's already too late. And you're actually just reinforcing and allowing that to happen. So if you're not actively standing up for trans people, then you're not standing up for yourself either. Um, And I think we all need to kind of like, think about that a little bit more and um, understand truly what is happening. These are such powerful words and I think it's important to remind ourselves that silence is violence and complicity in a system of power that's trying to marginalize and divide different groups is exactly what they they need to do to control us. I, I think when we talk about the role of intersectionality 
in not just academic scholarship, but also in community-oriented public health clinical research as well. It's so important to remember that these different intersecting identities that we hold as a white passing person, as a cis passing person, as a woman, as someone who is read as a person of color in a clinical environment, all of these different intersecting identities, I think, are constantly at play in determining who has power, who is marginalized, and which voices are heard. I think mm -hmm. I, I've, I've followed some of your work on social media and read some interviews too, but, but I think it's important to kind of remind ourselves like that sometimes that work that we do to amplify voices also involves like centering our centering our own experiences. Could you yep. could you talk a little bit about how you kind of see your role as an advocate for the LGBTQIA community as well as a member of that community and how those things kind of intersect for you? Yeah, for sure. Um it's been an interesting last two to three years for me, I'd say, in terms of, I made a very intentional decision probably about three years ago to just really lean in, in terms of being very visible as a queer kind of gender non-conforming person in plastic surgery and kind of leveraging the position I occupy between the ivory tower of academia and living in these communities um, and trying to almost like bring people out of the ivory tower and quote unquote into the streets um, and just like really understand what's going on on either side of those fences. Cause I think there's just never been bridges built or they've just been burned down so many times um, that there's been such little communication between LGBTQ plus people and often like accessing the group that controls the resources that they need access to. And, you know, certainly when I originally matched to plastic surgery, my whole plan was just like, try not to make any waves, just blend in, get through, like very much went through an initial culture of kind of trying to just assimilate and get by and just, you know, try to have thick skin and not let things bother me too much. But for sure had so many experiences of just like homophobia and queerphobia from you know, patients, different providers, like very real thing. And if we think about even the culture at a lot of our meetings, it's very still traditional country club, black tie, very like rigid definitions of professionalism. And I think to anyone that doesn't fit into that like straight white heterosexual categorization, it's not comfortable being in those spaces and you feel very othered and it's very clear that you're just not really supposed to be there or people are, don't even really know how to handle you. And I wanted people to feel like there is space on the other side for you to get the training you need and carve out a practice that means something to the community and means something to your people and means something to the world and show that there are alternative ways to be successful. And, you know, I can have this practice that is like very focused on genital surgery and people's sexual function and their individual needs and thrive with that and do research and be really outspoken and speak about politics and try to change the culture of the specialty and I think medicine as a whole. And it's been interesting, the response to that, I think, especially in the younger generations with fellows and residents and medical students. I probably get three to five emails a week from people from across the country or other countries about like what that visibility means, how that's inspired them to go into this work. And it really matters to people to see that 
you can do something and still be academic and find a way to make change in your own orbit. And that's kind of, I think, why I've kept going with it more than anything, because I feel like I'm holding a crack in the door for this onslaught of people that are trying so hard to get in. So I think I feel like I'm holding space more than anything. And, you know, I think it's interesting having conversations. I've had some mentors previously sort of say, you know, like, you're such a great surgeon and you're doing these like really innovative technical things. Like you should focus and talk more about that and like draw more attention to your surgical outcomes because that's what they view as like worthy of success Mm -hmm. or worthy of attention and have had people caution me about speaking out so much and like really talking about like queer representation and inclusivity and, you know, as if that is somehow like a less noble initiative or like worthy of less attention or praise where if my legacy is just like moving the needle even a little bit in like terms of the overarching culture of medicine, that is so much greater than the impact I'd have in any sort of technical realm of surgery. So I completely look at it from a different way. And um, I think what keeps me going is just the energy of young people in plastic surgery and people are kind of ready for change. And I'm excited to see how our meetings look in 10 years from now. So that was a really long answer to your question. <laughs> I, I'm just like so inspired and grateful to share space with you today, Dr. Peters. Yeah. Honestly, as a, as a queer and trans woman who's training in plastic surgery, I, I went to my first post-pandemic academic meeting this year. And I was glad to be at a session for LGBTQ trainees. Yeah. And it was just exciting and inspiring to look around that room and just feel the energy um, of how our specialty is going to be changing in the coming years. And, and it's, that's amazing. And those groups have existed for like one to two years, you know, like mm-hmm. I used to get through academic meetings by at least carving out one night to just like go to some queer venues mm-hmm. or like a gay bar or something myself just for like a break from the rigidity of that <laughs> culture. But it was hard to even find someone to go with. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, at our at our at our recent meeting, I went out to a queer bar with queer trainees that I met at the conference. So I, you know, these these things are amazing. In our, yeah, in our that's... it's it's great. It's great. Yeah. Speaking a little bit, kind of like pivoting a, a little bit, I wanted to talk a little bit more about your your work in academic research, particularly focusing on peripheral nerve surgery. Um, Rosie and I are currently on service together, um, and we've seen a little bit of peripheral nerve transfer surgery, and it just seems like such an exciting and inspiring work. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about how your diverse training and the intersections in different fields has kind of shaped your practice? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think my practice is a great example of the ingenuity and innovation of plastic surgery. Um, I think you really can build whatever you want to, and we are not kind of confined by what has or hasn't been done before. You know, I love genital surgery, but I have always had this like intense passion for nerve. And I think when I spent a year with Susan, she just like launched that into hyperspace. Um, that's, and that's, once, for, for the listener, that's Dr. Susan McKinnon. Yeah, Susan McKinnon. Here in St. Louis. Yeah, the icon, the legend, all those mm-hmm. things. <laughs> AKA how I prepare for all of my cases right now. <laughs> right, has single-handedly taught us all nerve surgery via her videos. <laughs> but once you train with her, like you never don't see nerve. It just is 
woven into your surgical fabric forever. Um, and it really does touch everything you do. And it was really interesting having that perspective and then going and starting to do these genital surgeries and also being a queer person that was, um, I think just more comfortable talking very openly about people's sexual needs in clinic. And it's like, if we're operating on someone's genitals, you really need to understand like what their erogenous zones are and what their sexual practices are and what the anatomy of their partners are. And all these things are going to be critical to actually addressing the problems that they're having. And I was quite surprised by so many things. A, like the fact that we just never talk to people about erogenous or sexual function in genital surgery consults. Um, and number two, that there was just very little strategy to optimizing or making sure that people's sensation and erogenous function was what they wanted it to be. And I think the key example for that, for me, was phalloplasty. And really, you know, I think the field had gotten to a point where, yeah, we should connect some nerves. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. And that, that was kind of it. <laughs> <laughs> like it was no more sort of, no one had taken it any further. Mm -hmm. So I've kind of over the last few years developed a more comprehensive approach that, you know, step one factors in what type of anatomy someone needs to have. Um, how do we manage their natal erogenous or clitoral tissue? Do they need to keep their vaginal canal or not in terms of is that like an erogenous zone for them? And then when we think about the nerves that I'm co-opting, my first choice is nerve topography. So targeting the recipient nerves in the flap that innervate the penile shaft and not the urethra. So we have the maximal innervation of the actual external tissue of the penis, um, bringing in sort of modern techniques from the peripheral nerve field, like intraoperative nerve stimulation, and then really recognizing that we're creating an appendage. And I think the most analogous thing is toe to thumb. And if we look at the sensory outcomes on toe to thumb transplant, entirely dependent on sensory education and recognizing that these aren't nerve connections, they're nerve transfers, and we weren't rehabilitating them at all. Um, and I basically spent a couple of years sort of taking all those things, working with some of my patients, um, and really targeting cortical plasticity, integration of the penis into sense of self, sexual embodiment, and sensory education, to really have a comprehensive approach to help people really rehabilitate and achieve their sensory goals. And I've been very, very happy with how that's been going. Um, but I think we're just scratching the tip of the iceberg when it comes to what's possible. And it's inspired me to start looking at even the cis population and in terms of just like sexual health, like we have just failed people so miserably, um, especially, you know, non-cis heterosexual men. And there's just such a massive need even for peripheral nerve surgeons in genital surgery and in sexual dysfunction and pelvic pain. Um, I'm giving a, a talk at a sensory neurotization course at ASPN next week, um, which I'm really excited about because they asked me to talk about genital surgery, which I kind of made the little political statement last year and kind of more or less stole my four minute abstract to do a political attempt to call people like call nerve surgeons into trans surgery and into genital surgery and make the point that there's like this huge need for innovation and innovation in these issues. Um, and then I guess it went over well, cause they gave me 12 minutes this time. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm really excited about it. Cause I think there's just like so much terrain and so many ways that we as plastic and nerve surgeons can massively improve people's quality of life. And I think we need to lean into that more. That is, that is just so inspiring. I, I think it's important to like, you know, one, of the, one of the beauties of 
plastic reconstructive surgery is the interdisciplinarity of the field and how often we can learn from our partners in hand surgery and in neurosurgery or even orthopedic hand surgery. All of these things like overlap and I've, I've been seeing that uh, this month as well on our, on our hand uh, rotation. Totally. I think it's, it's really important to think about that you know, investment from other uh, clinicians. But one of the things that you also do in your work that you mentioned just then is kind of the investment that you have in members of the queer and trans community in like mm. community-centered research interventions. So you had a paper recently that talked about kind of like the involvement of therapists and patients in mm. specifically developing um, like a patient-reported outcome-focused tool for phalloplasty. And I, I want to know if you could kind of speak to the role of stakeholder engagement in yeah. clinical and translational research. Oh, 100%. So yeah, that paper you're referencing is out in um, Global Open, and it's the uh, neurosensory re-education protocol for people undergoing phalloplasty. So I published that open access because I want every academic institution and frankly, anyone that undergoes phalloplasty, the chance to just be able to have access to that information. But basically, that was put together by a team of 10 people, sort of multidisciplinary stakeholders, which was myself, um, a peripheral nerve therapist, two pelvic floor physiotherapists, a sex therapist, a reconstructive urologist, um, and five of my patients that were undergoing phalloplasty, who in real time were like providing live feedback um, about what was working, what wasn't working. Um, we went through multiple iterations. And then after kind of round four and a two year process kind of had a finalized protocol that everyone signed off on. That for me, I think was my first major foray into like, really, really including people with lived experience in a massive way, like really shaping where that research was going. And I, you know, I think we all know that's important, but I can't state like how critical it was for this work. Mm -hmm. That protocol is exponentially better than it was ever going to be because there are just perspectives of people that have went through that process themselves or are going through it in real time that I would never have known. And I've learned so many things. And there's so many things written into that protocol that are helping so many of my future patients because of that inclusion of trans people um, with lived phalloplasty experience. And I think as a field, you know, there's this really like publish or perish and kind of like push for everyone to be really academic and publish. But the most impactful work is often the work that takes time and takes real investment. And I'm really, really proud of that project and hope to replicate something um, similar for people undergoing vaginoplasty. But yeah, trans inclusion or really inclusion of any population that is being researched is really important, as I think is trying to get things open access when we can. So the information actually makes it back to the community and the people that it directly affects. The, the, the old uh, adage is uh, no work about us without us, right? Something we've right. heard for years in this type of work. Um, speaking of which, you recently published something, um, I think it was in the Urology Journal, it was a video-based kind of guide of robot-assisted vaginoplasty. And I will tell you in terms of open access that I tried to watch the video and I haven't found it yet. So mm. um, if you're able to on your socials, please push that video because the public and the surgical trainees, we are excited to see that type of uh, content. So. Yes, I um I have a few video papers coming down the pipeline because there's um 
there's a lot of holes in terms of educating around these procedures. So one big one was how do you technically adjust in people that have limited skin for vaginoplasty? So made a video illustrating, you know, if you have like almost no skin, how do you still construct all the critical structures? Um, and then have another video coming out demonstrating dissection of a dorsal nerve of the clitoris. It's just not something that people are ever sort of formally shown. It's kind of a high stakes thing mm -hmm. if you think about implications. Of course, of course. Um, so really trying to kind of create some safe reproducible resources for a lot of the people and a lot of the fellows starting to train in this field or a lot of the programs kind of starting up with these cases. So I think that's the future of a lot of surgical education is high quality videos. And that's something I picked up from Susan. I mean, I would watch her videos before I would do the first whatever marquee nerve transfer with her. And it was almost like I had done the operation 20 times by the time I was there because it just looks and is the exact same. Yeah, if they're done well, they're really quite remarkable. Totally, that's something that I'm really uh, appreciating as I like begin my plastic uh, surgery training is like the role of like high def video. Um, we have like a, a cleft and craniofacial series that I've been watching as well as like the Duke flap course that has like really good videos. All of these types of things are just so critical in an era where no one has textbooks in their office. I mean, like none of us have offices as residents. We don't have stacks and stacks of books. All of our content is digital media. So like trying to get that out to us is like the most critical thing, I think, in, in our training. Yes, I'm happy to see. Amazing. Oh, so go ahead, Rose. No, I, just, I still find it amazing when you watch a video and then the dissection looks exactly like it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's just incredible. I mean, I'm so happy that our journals are recognizing the importance of that and have these avenues for video. So uh, my partner, Dr. Burley and I, who uh, we were on the fallow program together, are working on a video summarizing how to do um, two-stage phalloplasty because we just have so many people coming through to visit. And, you know, I think about when I went through residency, like just videos weren't really a thing. And you try to be reading about all these things in textbooks your first couple of years and you've never actually seen it. And there's just no context and it's impossible to really like three-dimensionally picture what people are talking about. So it's a total game changer. And I hope that, um, you know, there just becomes more and more avenues to have that content produced over time. We very much appreciate all of your contributions to that whole area and all of your, you know, your presence through videos and papers and, and social media. I think seeing you as an advocate has been really cool and it's spread very wide across the community. So we're definitely happy to, uh, to have well, you Well, thank here. you. <laughs> it's a um, little scary. Uh, I think when you're someone in academia starting to really go out there on social media and be opinionated and talk about hard topics, um, I think it pushes against a lot of what the implicit messaging is when we're in academia and it can be a scary thing but it's been um I've been very pleased with the positive impact of it which is why I keep doing it and hope over time you know more people are inspired to kind of engage more in that way thank you for all that you're doing in that space it's really just inspiring to all of us kind of like touching on that point as well um, how would you recommend surgical trainees to learn more? So we, we spoke in the role of videos, of course, um, but like some of the videos are not always open access for folks. How would you, like what words of advice would you have for surgical trainees looking to get into this type of work who might not have exposure during their residency? Yeah, um, so to gender surgery specifically, 
the landscape is honestly evolving so quickly. Um, I think we're at seven formal gender affirming surgery fellowships in plastics now. This is the first year that there's actually a fellowship match through ACAPS with like an integrated application process. So even since I went through a few years ago, it's massively progressed. And I think that's only going to continue to get better. ASPS next year is supposed to have a gender affirming surgery specific pathway um, for the first time. Um, I know I'm moderating a session at Plastic uh, PSRC in April on gender affirming surgery. So the academic presence at meetings is starting to massively increase. We have a gender surgery section in PRS. Um, so I think a lot of that, I think we've reached the tipping point where it really is becoming more and more integrated into the fibers of medicine. I do think there's still a huge need for open access resources. The one thing that I had done previously as a resident and I've learned people are happy to accommodate is if you just email the corresponding author and just ask if they can provide you a copy of the paper or video, or whatever it is, I've never had anyone say no. Um, so I think that's always a good sort of tactic in your toolkit. There are some resources in Plastic Surgery Education Network as well um, with gender affirming surgery modules that a lot of us are sort of involved in putting together. Um, so I think those are good starting points. And then if you're truly potentially looking at um, fellowship training and pursuing this line of, I think, a career. I think it is important to see firsthand the kind of key procedures. So like really making sure you have an opportunity to observe a phalloplasty and vaginoplasty and some facial feminization cases, just to make sure that you kind of have an understanding of the procedures, the anatomy, what goes into it. So you can kind of make an informed choice for yourself. But I think that's the struggle is genital surgery is lagging behind a little bit in terms of its sort of presence at academic programs. And it's going to take a while, I think, to have enough surgeons that are like very comprehensively trained and doing those procedures across the country. But it's going to get better every year. It's going to get better every year. It could be a motto for, for many things that we discussed today in this <laughs> podcast, for sure. For sure. Um, thank you so much for joining us today, uh, Dr. Peters. Um, as we kind of wrap up our time with you, do you have any like final words of wisdom that you want to share with our listeners? What I would say is training is a very temporary time in your life. It doesn't feel like it <laughs> when you're in it. Um, it can be very long, but truly when you're on the other side of training, it does get better and you have more autonomy and more control than you think. And I think what you need to understand is we as people should be representative of the people that we treat. And if you want to do something and you feel that there's a need, it's because there is a need. And if you make yourself visible in that work, the right people will find you, you will be successful and you can define what meaningful work is for yourself and what your own success looks like. And I think that is kind of the magic of plastic surgery is you truly can be happy doing the work that you want to do just believe in yourself and try to not let the external influences and other people's ideas about what you should do or what traditional success might look like apply to you because it's your life and it's your work and it should, you know, keep you warm at night. I love that. <laughs> Thank you so much. Where can people find you on social media and at meetings next? 
Yeah. So um, my Instagram and Twitter handles are the same. They're at Queer Surgeon. You can find me on both of those. Um, I will be at the Nerve Micro meeting um, next week, which I doubt this will be out by then, but hopefully I'll see some of you there. <laughs> um, and then I'll be at um, PSRC in April. I think it's in Cleveland. Um, and then we'll see from there. I'm always at the PATH meetings, maybe making an appearance at ASPS this year. We will see. Well, we look forward to seeing you there. Yeah, I'm excited to see all in person. <laughs> well, thanks so much for listening to The Resident Review, and we will see you guys next time. Thanks, y'all. As a plastic surgeon with a unique vision for each patient, the more options you have at your fingertips, the better. Natrell is one of the portfolios available to you. To learn more, visit natrellsurgeon.com.